Hello and welcome to the Highway to Health show. In this episode, I am joined by Chandler Walker. Chandler studied biology and biochemistry at the University of Nevada in Reno and has spent most of his career looking at the epigenetics and understanding why we think and feel the way we do and how our lifetime interactions make the brain create shifts in our thinking. Chandler now owns and runs a wellness center designed to bridge the gap between the doctor's office and the gym. And after spending well over 2,000 individual hours with people, he has learned that wellness, well, it starts in the mind. And today, he's going to share his six pillars of wellness with us. Now, before we go on to today's episode, I want to remind you that we've added a self-study program in addition to my one-on-one and group coaching packages. This is an amazing resource for you to explore at your own pace and learn about improving your health and well-being. To learn more and to apply, just head on over to dre.show forward slash coach. In any case, I don't want to keep you any longer. Here's my conversation with Chandler Walker. And remember, you are on the highway to health and I'm your guide to get you there. Are you ready to live ageless? Want to discover alternative health choices, cutting edge nutrition, and fitness for the entire family? Welcome to Highway to Health Show with your host, Dr. E, the stem cell guy, where Dr. E helps you live ageless. And now, here's your host, Dr. E. Hello, and welcome back to the Highway to Health Show. I am sitting here with Chandler Walker. And instead of me just reading your bio, why don't you, Chandler, say hi to our audience and share a little bit more about your health journey? Yeah. Hey, everybody. Hope y'all are doing amazing today. My name's Chandler, and I'm super excited to be on this podcast. Thanks for having me on, and I hope everyone here listening enjoys the experience. I hope your eyes don't glaze over and you don't fall asleep, but I think that's not going to happen. Anyway, the way I started in my journey through wellness essentially was, as I was growing up, my mother growing up had bipolar disorder, and as we were going through life, she never directed anything towards myself or my siblings, but I did see a lot of outbursts and I saw a lot of ups and downs. And I also saw someone who wasn't able to find or get the help that she needed because at the time, and I think even currently in society, people often say, oh, just put your head down, suck it up. There's nothing wrong with you. Just move forward, move past it. And so she suffered for a lot of years. And as I grew older, I became incredibly empathetic towards people who are suffering from mental health and disorders and anything like that. And I kind of went to school for biochemistry and in my college years, we finally figured out that she had bipolar disorder and she was able to get help and she was able to figure out what was going on. And it was a night and day difference when she was finally comfortable enough to go find the help that she needed. And it took her own self-education at the fundamental level. It wasn't someone who just said, hey, you have this. It was she had to research and figure it out and find it and then find the right people to help her. So that led me to pursuing biology and biochemistry in college. I went on a med school track, but I kind of got to a tough point where I felt like my main thing that I was doing was providing medications and providing a Band-Aid or managing pain. And I wasn't able to come at it from a holistic health viewpoint in that current position. So, And I had a father growing up who was very entrepreneurial. So, so I was exposed to that and I was aware that there was another way to go. I didn't have to just pursue this thing that everybody said I needed to do. My father growing up took me to customer houses all the time. He had a siding and window business. And so he'd wake me up at six in the morning because I thought it was awesome when I was a kid going to the workplace with dad. And so he'd pick me up, we'd get a donut and orange juice, which was probably the reason I went with him. And he'd take (laughs) me to customers' houses and we'd sit there and I'd watch his sales calls and I'd listen to his sales conversations and I'd watch how he interacted with customers. 
And then I'd stay at his office for a little bit because he had jerky there, which was the greatest jerky in the history of the world. And we'd hung out there. So I had a lot of exposure to this. And so when I felt like I wasn't comfortable or necessarily in the right place in terms of the med school track I was going, I knew I could break off and I knew I could pursue an entrepreneurial endeavor because I'd been so exposed to it. and It wasn't a scary thing for me. And that's when we opened our first business and we called it Stone Age Fuel, which was devoted to helping people remove chronic pain so they can stay mobile and independent into their 90s. And from that, we developed our six pillars of wellness. So it's mental health, social health, nutrition or gut health, fitness, sleep, and wealth. I came up with those after about 2,000 hours sitting with people and discussing and working through problems on the couch. And I found that those are the six things that people technically struggle with and the six things that people can't quite figure out. They might get one or two, but the rest are falling apart. And how do you figure out to place them in that order, though? Yeah, so when I sit down with people, people suffering from chronic pain are, are an interesting group because they have pain, but the pain is often associated with the way they think and feel about themselves, the way they think and feel about their environment and others, the way they eat, the way they sleep, and then how stressed they are about their finances and their life right now. And Because chronic pain can be an issue manifested from chronic pain. It can be an issue manifested from autoimmune disease, but it can also be an issue manifested from depression and anxiety. And so I think the biggest thing that I always found out was people walked in the door defeated already. They walked in the door in the mindset that they weren't going to be able to do it, that they were going to quit, or that nobody was in their corner. Secondary, they walked in with the mindset that they were all alone in this world and their suffering was something that only they were suffering from. Third, they walked in and they weren't eating right. They were following like the USDA guidelines, kind of. They've been on roller coaster diets, but they just couldn't keep it in check. So their gut was a disaster and a mess. And then their fitness, obviously everything else wasn't in order. So they felt like, why should I even exercise? It doesn't even matter. And then sleep. The entire world is chronically sleep deprived, especially the US. We have this hustle mentality, actually. I'm playing into it with this every day I'm hustling thing. But we have this hustle mentality. So work 17 jobs, don't sleep, do everything as hard as possible and never look back. But the problem is now we're chronically sleep deprived and it's making everything else suffer. And then the final one that I most recently came up with was wealth. And I realized that this isn't about being rich and there's nothing wrong with making money, but it's about the fact that if people have to struggle with their finances, they're not going to eat well. They're not going to focus on their mental health. They're not going to focus on their fitness. And they're not going to sleep because they have to figure out how to make money and how to survive. So it became a pillar of wellness that we have to pursue in order to be optimally well. Yeah, that's incredibly important. And I find it not shocking because you know I'm very much into that. And our listeners will be able to test. It's something that we spend a lot of time drilling on. But it is the fact that when you develop your system, you identified mental health as the number one issue to address. Why is this so important and why do you think that we need desperately to address it before pretty much everything else? Yeah, the big problem is, like I was saying earlier, people walk in the door defeated. They walk in the door, they don't believe in themselves. They walk in the door and they have some anxiety associated with what's about to happen. They're afraid of it. And because of that, in our minds, we tell ourselves stories and that story becomes the truth that we live and that truth becomes the reality that we see. So by the time that they've walked in the door to try to get help or treatment or something, they've already defeated themselves to the point to where they don't think they can do it. And that story tells them that they can't. And so what I found was most people walking in the door were struggling. They were struggling internally with something that hadn't been resolved. They were struggling with 
their weight with the chronic pain they had. They were struggling with something that happened in their childhood. They were struggling with something that happened in their college years, but everybody in the room was struggling with something. And I could probably define it as 75% of the people who walked in the door had a traumatic experience they were still trying to come to terms with. And so if you look at society, it's the same way. Look to your left, look to your right. 75% of the people you're standing around are struggling with something and we don't recognize that. And because of that, that became the first pillar. And we even branched that into additional one with the social health, because now when you're struggling in your own head and you, and you think the things that you're going through are only something that you've gone through, you feel like you're alone in the world and you feel like you can't get any help from anybody and you feel like nobody's going to get you and you're going to, you feel like you're going to be ostracized if you do talk about it. Exactly. And you even feel, like you said, you feel inadequate because you assume that since you're the only one who's going through that, you're abnormal, right? And you're defective or you are a failure because you're the only one doing that. And I think as soon as we remove the stigma for most of these different issues, then we realize that we're far from alone when we're suffering from any of these things, whether it is trying to lose weight or whether it is trying to regain mobility or trying to get rid of pain. We're far from alone there. Exactly. And I always tell people, we try to pursue perfection. We see the magazines with perfect people. We see the movies. We see all these perfect things. But in reality, we're human beings and together we're all imperfect. And if we realize and understand that we're pursuing an imperfect pathway, it makes life a lot easier to live. And it makes it a lot easier to understand that the things that happen to you today are the journey and the evolution that are going to take you into tomorrow. Exactly. Now, that is the first of six steps, though. What is the very next step? Yeah. So the next step that I figured out was social health. Most people in our world are afraid to step out of their homes. They're afraid to talk to people. And interesting thing that I found out the other day is people wear their headphones without any music just so other people won't talk to them. And so you look at the way we live, we live isolated and we're a social species. We're a species that was designed to interact and congregate and move around together. And so once we eliminate the social aspect, we put ourselves in a place to where we're in our own head. And when you're in your own head, you create a story that can't be defeated by anyone else. You create a story that tells you that you are alone, that you don't have anybody to be around. And so that creates a certain amount of loneliness. And this loneliness feeds into that anxiety and depression. And the loneliness feeds into eating the way you're not supposed to eat. And the loneliness feeds into sleepless nights. And the loneliness feeds into, I'm never going to make money. I'm never going to make it. And it turns into this self-defeating atmosphere and behavior. And so for me, the second pillar is to define and outline how you can be social. And this brings out a lot of anxiety for people. I can't go to the party. I can't look at someone and say hi in the streets. That's insane. But I find that everybody's thinking this way. And so if you just look up, look at someone and say, hey, how's your day? It's almost like you gave them a million dollars. Like, hold on. Whoa, did you just say hi to me? I don't know what to do right now, but I'm excited. And so you knock people back. I mean, I'll be sometimes in the bathroom at the urinal and I'll say hi to someone and I make best friends in there because you are actually interacting with a human being and we all want to be interacted with each other, but we're all afraid to interact with each other. Other than I hope I don't run into you in a men's room. I'll say hi to you. Um, <laughs> you probably will. No, but seriously, it is absolutely true what you just said. It is a way that many of us actually do behave in terms of trying to avoid that interaction. But why do you think we've gotten to that point? If as humans, we've kind of evolved to being social. We needed to be social because if we weren't social, we would probably end up stranded or not being able to feed ourselves or not being able to fend off for ourselves, right? So why do we get to that point where we're trying to now stay isolated and away from the rest of the world? So here's the problem. Evolutionarily, and from an evolutionary perspective, we were designed to be afraid of our surroundings, designed to be cognizant that other people are there and that because our bodies don't 
want us to die. But in today's environment and the way we live today, we don't have that problem anymore. But those evolutionary mechanisms have continued to exist and have continued to follow with us because they haven't gone away. And so when we look at the reason that people are afraid to step out of their comfort zone or afraid to get out in the environment is they're consistently thinking about what other people think. And they're consistently thinking about what could happen. And what could happen turns into what's bad that's going to happen. And what bad that is going to happen creates the story that we tell ourselves. And that becomes a reality. And so we continuously think, well, what are they going to do? What are they going to think? Oh, what if it goes wrong? And it puts us in a mindset to where now we're afraid. We've developed anxiety around it. And we don't want to do it because we think all of the bad is going to happen. And it's a distortion that we create in our head as we go through life. And the problem with this is everybody's thinking the same thing. What is that person going to think about me? What are they going to think? What are they going to do? But the problem is when you look at it from a fundamental aspect of people, we actually don't think about what other people are doing. We think about what we're doing. We're busy enough trying to get through our own day. But if we're all thinking about what other people are thinking about us, but in turn, nobody's actually thinking about anybody, we've created this epidemic and this problem where we're afraid to do anything. Yeah, and it is kind of that saying that what happens that when you're 20, 40, and 60, that when you're 20, you think that everybody's thinking about you and looking at you and, and judging you. And then when you're 40, you stop caring about what other people think of you and might say about you. But then until we were 60, you realized that nobody was ever looking at you exactly. or caring about you. Like, you know, they were too busy caring for themselves and what they thought about themselves in order to be worried about you. So absolutely. Now, as you start addressing these things, and it's very interesting the way you put it together, because I think that most of the time we address most of these things backwards. And I like that you actually, in terms of health and wellness, and you place wealth as a pillar, but it is the last one. And most of the time, we put it upside down because we think that once we achieve wealth, we're going to be able to take the time off to actually look at our sleep and look at our nutrition and look at all these other things and socialize and be happy. And I'll be able to have time for myself and to meditate and to care for my mental health when I do all those things. But in reality, it's the other way around, correct? Exactly. And it's funny, once you do find wealth, if you don't take care of everything else, you end up still being lonely. You, you still have anxiety. You still have depression. You still find reasons not to exercise or eat right. And it's the story we tell ourselves. And if we don't focus on all of the pillars until we get to wealth, then the wealth just becomes a crutch that holds us in the prison that we're in. We end up still being a prison inside of our own heads. Absolutely, for sure. Now, we've explored two of them so far. What's your next pillar? Like in order, what would be the next step? Yeah. So actually, I've place sleep before wealth, but I fundamentally believe that sleep should come next. So when you look at someone in life and in society, we're chronically sleep deprived because we need to work five jobs to survive. We stay up late. We're on Netflix. We're on our phones. Like, well, what's that someone doing on Facebook at two in the morning? And then you're, I'm going to go to sleep. And all of a sudden you're looking up nuclear particle physics and it keeps you up for seven hours and you like, oh, I got to get up for work and it's 4 a.m. So I think the problem that we're in is evolutionarily, we should have gone to sleep when the sun went down or we should have just gone to sleep when we're tired. But now we've got artificial lights and we've got the idea that money has been created. So we have to create money. So we have to work different shifts. So it's put us in a place to where now we're chronically sleep deprived and it's impacting us in terms of our mental health, our social health, our nutrition, and our fitness. If your sleep's not there, you're going to have hormones that tell your body to eat more as a mechanism to survive. If you're sleeping well and you're fine, another hormone is going to tell you, hey, you don't need to eat as much. You're not going to die today. And so fundamentally from that aspect, we literally have a direct impact on how much we're going to eat, what we're going to eat, and how we're going to feel based on how much we sleep. Now, we've recently been seeing a lot of attention being placed on sleep. And I think rightly so, because you're absolutely right. We are chronically under sleeping. But 
what I found out is that a lot of people think that it's just a matter of recharging our energy. Like we were a cell phone that needs to be plugged in. I know that that's far from true, but in your experience, what is so important about sleep? Because I know that we're not batteries. We don't need to recharge, but what actually does happen to our bodies, to our cells or tissues when we sleep? Yeah. So when we sleep, your bodies, your cells, your tissues, everything's regenerating and recuperating. So it's not just the idea that you're recharging a battery. You're essentially giving yourself the ability to think clearly and have clarity in your life. And if you think about work, if you're chronically underslept, you're going to go to work and you're going to feel frustrated. You're going to feel like you can't figure out what's going on. You're going to have cloudy brain syndrome. You're going to get headaches. And so what sleep does is it allows us to be able to be optimal. And it's not like a battery where you just have to be 100%. It's I need to sleep so I can think clearly. I can have clarity. I can move with a purpose. And when I get through my day, I'm not frustrated. I'm not angry. Everything else works out. And there's so many hormones and so many mechanisms involved that it's an incredibly complex concept. But from a fundamental level, you need sleep in order to be able to live your life well. If you don't sleep enough, you're going to live your life suboptimally and you're going to feel frustrated. You're going to feel angry. You're going to feel like your brain's foggy and cloudy. You're going to feel like you can't figure out a problem. Like anything at work's not going to work. If you go to like a fitness class, it's going to feel terrible. You're going to get angry there. And these are often causes from not sleeping well and not sleeping enough. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There are so many, what I call maintenance tasks that our cells start performing while we sleep and especially in our brain. You know, it is the time where we actually create those neural pathways, where we create those memories, where we solidify what we learn, because everything that we're doing is something that we're learning. I hear this a lot. I worked a lot with the autistic community, for instance, and many of these kids have certain issues with sleep, you know, melatonin and, and, and things like that. And the problem is they struggle as well to learn new things. And that's why they need to go to ABA therapy and behavioral therapy. But the problem is that no matter how much behavioral therapy they receive, they're not sleeping well. They're not being able to install or to solidify all these things that they learned in their head. And I always give the example of, I think most of us have at some point or another, cramped for a test the night before. And it gets to a point where you can no longer, you feel like you can not read a single word additional from what you've already read, right? And you almost give up and you say like, oh, you know what? Screw this. I'm just going to fail tomorrow. I'm just I'm going to bed. And suddenly you wake up the next day and boom, you remember everything that you just learned. It's because you went to sleep. And that's when your brain actually is able to process everything that you've been all those inputs that you've received and create those new neural pathways. So I have to agree that it is tremendously important. Exactly. It's the one thing that can make or break your ability to move forward in life and feel well as you do it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And in your experience, how much or how little are people sleeping on average? So I think people are on average are sleeping usually five hours a night or so, or, or sometimes even less. I do think it's a misnomer on how many hours of sleep at night that we need to have because everybody's radically different. And the way we've been brought up and the way we perform and our past and evolution hasn't dictated that eight hours of sleep is actually a necessity in our lives. So I think people need to be able to lay down their heads and wake up whenever they wake up versus thinking, oh, I need to get eight hours of sleep. And then if you don't, it creates this construct in your head. Oh, I didn't get eight hours. I didn't get good sleep. And now you've developed in your mindset that your sleep was bad because you didn't get enough time. And so I think when we look at sleep from a fundamental level, it's 
We need to set up a bedtime routine. We need to set up the ability to allow ourselves to have worry time before bed. We need to go to sleep and then we need to wake up feeling refreshed and okay and not worry about the amount of sleep that we actually get. I think I have to disagree with you on that one. The research that we've seen is quite unequivocal that we do need eight hours. There's about 2% of the population that can function with about seven and a half or six, six and a half, sorry, seven. But I do agree with your fundamental concept about the fact that if we're stressing too much about the amount of hours that we sleep and suddenly we realize that I won't be able to sleep eight hours, it doesn't mean that everything goes out the window and I might as well just stay up until three in the morning. Because yes, that really doesn't serve any of us. But I do think that we need to be aiming for a lot more than the average. If what you're seeing is about five hours, five and a half hours, maybe I'm just seeing more health conscious people because either I work with autistic patients or I work with people who want to come in for stem cell treatments for purely anti-aging. So they're usually more health conscious. But yeah, I wasn't aware that the average person was sleeping about five and a half or six hours, like you say. Yeah, so we're chronically sleep deprived and we don't feel good about it if we don't get our eight hours. We've created a huge complex that and like uh, psychology that we're dealing with that's okay I didn't sleep eight hours it's not worth it I don't even it doesn't even matter so we eliminate the time that you need to sleep it doesn't matter if you sleep eight hours just go to sleep and let's work on the way we sleep and let's work on the way we feel after the sleep for sure. Yeah. And that sleep routine, that's so important. And I always tell people, listen, you need to start improving your sleep hygiene. And that begins by having a routine. So a good day starts the night prior when you plan and when you decide to go to bed and you actually go to bed and you avoid that artificial light a couple of hours early and, you know, before going to bed and you don't have a heavy meal, you know, 20 minutes before going to bed. And something that a lot of people get surprised is when they say, you know what, and you have to avoid caffeine for at least five or six hours before you're planning to go to bed. So it's not like just an hour before because the half-life of caffeine is way too long. So personally, I'd only drink decaf afternoon, never after 2 or 3 p.m. that a lot of people do that. And that seems to work well with me. Now, we've covered so far, I believe that's three, correct? Yes, three so far. Three so far. So what's your next step? So the next step is nutrition or gut health. And I think it's most important to focus on your gut and the health of your gut as you progress and as you age, because I think the big problem and my background as I, in my undergrad and as I progressed in school was gut health. And it was the specialty I focused on. What I saw was the way your gut is organized is the way your body's going to look, feel, and perform. And so if your gut's a disaster, if we have uh, irritable bowel syndrome or leaky gut or or anything like that, it's going to put us in a place to where now we've developed a sort of autoimmune disease or now we've developed something that's irregular that's causing a problem and cascading through the rest of our body. And so if your junctions aren't tight and if you've lost them and if you're leaking, now you've created a problem to where you're essentially pooping in your blood. And what does that do? Well, that creates an issue to where you're now going to see it on your skin. You're going to see it in the way you feel. You're going to see it in your dental hygiene. You're going to see it in the way you smell. And so it really becomes the critical zone of either making or breaking your ability to not just lose weight or gain weight, but to be healthy. I think that is so important how you actually place those two together because a lot of the time we think that, oh, nutrition, we just need to eat the right things and we just need to eat X amount of fat and X amount of protein and I need to avoid all those things. But we neglect our microbiome or the other way around, we are thinking that our microbiome and I need to do X or Y and I need to not take antibiotics and I need to you know, eat fermented foods or and whatnot to care or probiotics to care for my microbiome. But in reality, they're two and the same. So I very much agree with how you've placed them together. How have your clients reacted to this when you actually explain these things to them? 
they're usually pretty pumped about it because they finally have an answer. People typically walk in and they've been suffering for years. They've been suffering for forever. They can't even remember the last time that they felt okay and they felt good. And they've been told by their physicians that there's nothing they can do, or they've been told by the medical community that they see that they just have to live this way and that they can take this pill and it's going to make them better. So when they walk in and you give them hope, and you give them a reason and you give them something that can make them feel better. It puts them in a place to where now they actually have hope and they feel good about themselves and they feel like they can maybe somehow get over this pain. And when you see someone who has been through these programs with us and has worked with us and they walk in and they say, for the first time in 10 years, it doesn't hurt when I eat. But that's what you're looking for. That's the incredibly impactful and powerful thing that you're doing for people and you're providing for them when you teach them how to essentially heal their gut and how to put their gut into a place of optimal capacity. Yeah, for sure. And how surprised are they after all these years of seeing different doctors and of taking medication and of suffering through the side effects of such medication and of enduring through the symptoms and suddenly realizing that, oh my God, it was as simple as just eating the right kinds of foods and following the right kinds of gut health protocols that you have. Because I mean, you can share with us a little bit more about them, but they're usually not complicated and they're usually not inaccessible to 99.9% of the population, correct? Oh yeah, really. You could open up a book and probably figure out how to do it. I think the problem is people don't feel comfortable doing it or like you're saying, they don't understand that it's going to actually work or it's going to be powerful. I think it's like voodoo. Like, oh, this is magic or witchcraft. But in reality, it's a simple process you put people through. And then at the end, they're dumbfounded. They're in disbelief that something like focusing on their gut or repairing their gut can actually put them in a place to where they don't suffer and come into pain anymore. And it's incredible to see how much shock they see because I think the problem that we've learned in Western society especially is growing up, if there's something wrong with you, you go see the doctor, he gives you a pill and it gets fixed. You don't go see the doctor if there's nothing wrong with you. That's crazy talk. You never do that. But if you look at maybe even outside the Western world, it is more focused on preventative care. So what can I do to heal my gut? What can I do for my mindset? And I think we're progressing a little bit. And even then, not just from the physician standpoint, which I do think that traditional medical education is lacking there, but also from the patient standpoint, because if they do go see a doctor, and maybe not so much right now, but a couple of years ago, if they went in to see a doctor and the doctor said, oh, you know what, we're just going to start switching your diet and we're going to start nourishing your microbiome, they would have walked out of that office saying, this idiot didn't even prescribe a thing. I need somebody to give me antibiotics. I need somebody to give me a pill because this guy wants me to switch my diet. What does that have to do with it? I still remember one time when I was precepting and interning down in Vegas at UMC and I was sitting there, the doctor was working and I was sitting in the back paying attention and watching and learning. And the patient came and sat on the chair and the doctor said, so have you focused on your diet, kind of cleaning things up, making yourself better? And he was like, no, but I just need a refill on my pills and then I can be gone. And I was like, there it is. There's the clash. We have patients who are educated to just take a pill and physicians who are essentially hamstrung to be able to give them that pill or have the patient do nothing. Yeah, because if you realize most of the time, because there is no, we don't have that culture of preventative medicine. People don't go see the doctor when they're healthy, like you very well said, or when they're not sick, like you said. They're getting their health information or their medical information from pharmaceuticals advertising on TV. So that's it they've built that belief that whenever there's something wrong with you, there's probably a pill for it. Exactly. And then you just need to go in and get it. Yeah. And it's a huge problem. It's like the commercial you see every day. If you feel like this pill is right for you, contact your physician today. And then side effects, irritable bowel syndrome, syndrome, death, disorder, dysbiosis. And there's like 900 other things. And they're like, oh, no, that'll fix me. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. A thousand other things that nobody even understands about. So that's really, really crazy. And what are some of the most impactful changes or differences that you've noticed with your clients as they start healing their gut? Yeah. So some of the most incredible things that I've seen or common things, I guess, from healing the gut is as soon as you start seeing the gut being healed, people start saying, my joints don't hurt anymore. It doesn't hurt when I wake up at this point. It doesn't hurt when I eat anymore. I don't feel like I'm going to throw up. I don't have acid reflux every time I eat anything. I don't feel like I'm dying right before I go to bed. I don't stay up all night. Uh, my psoriasis is starting to clear up. My eczema isn't as bad anymore. My skin feels clear and smooth. And I feel like I'm, I'm eating less, but I feel better and I feel more full. And, and so I think what happens is people realize that all these problems that they have are starting to go away or in terms of autoimmune disease, they're not going to go away. They're just going to go into remission or they're going to go into a place to where you don't have flare-ups and you just are able to finally live okay. I've discussed this before. The patient doesn't care if they still have the label of psoriasis. They're like, okay, sure. I still have the diagnosis, but I don't have the flare-ups. I don't have the scaly skin. I'm not, you know, I'm not peeling, I'm not bleeding. So I'm fine. You call me whatever you want, right? Exactly. I don't have to walk in public with like flaky eyebrows or something. It's like life is good now. And like, for example, have I had one girl who was my favorite. She had of working with, she had MS when she walked in and couldn't go out in the sun, was having, she stuck herself all the time with her medication. It was hard. She couldn't exercise. She had a personal trainer who thought it was pain over or whatever, pursue pain, pain is candy. And it laid her up for two weeks in bed because of the way it was approached. And so when she came to us, we cleaned it up, we worked with her, we got her into the right position. And then all of a sudden, the flare up stopped happening. She stopped experiencing so much pain. And like you're saying, she still has MS, but she doesn't care anymore because she feels okay. She feels like a normal person. She feels comfortable finally. And that's incredibly empowering. Yeah, that's something that I learned when I first trained in age management medicine. And we used to talk to a lot of potential patients at the time. And as a physician, when they say like, well, why is this important? You always default to going towards, well, you need to decrease your cardiovascular risk. You need to take care of your diabetes risk because it runs in your family and because of all these things. They don't care about that. They care about how well they look and without a shirt and how well their genes fit and all these different things, which is nothing wrong about it. So it's the same thing about a diagnosis. Us doctors, we're too stuck up about a diagnosis. Well, she still fits the criteria for MS. That's great, but she doesn't feel like it. So exactly. Yeah, so she's enjoying she, her life. She's good now. Yeah, and that's what it is. It's like the social health aspect. People want to feel good. They want to feel good in public and they want to feel good in front of themselves. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I couldn't agree more. So, what goes after healing your gut? So, after healing your gut, then you can dip into the fitness realm because from what I've found, fitness first doesn't necessarily work at all because it's not going to last. You're going to hurt worse and you're it's going to fall off track. So then once we've healed our gut, once our mental health is in order, our social health is good, we're sleeping, we got our nutrition down, then fitness can come into play. And I think we go wrong with fitness because people want to be like the guy with the nipple tank smashing barbells against the wall. And they think that's optimal fitness. Like I need to be there six days a week, 50 minutes a day and just crushing life. But then you burn out after like two weeks because it's not very fun doing that. And we've gone in so many different waves with fitness. You see back in the day, it was bodybuilding, be as big as humanly possible. Your nipple tank should not fit ever. And then we went into, okay, wait, hold on. Maybe we shouldn't be that big. And then we get, okay, now do CrossFit. And then CrossFit was cool. And then it became, do it seven days a week, kill yourself, do as many reps as possible. And now we're starting to, I think, move into more, maybe we should just take care of ourselves. Maybe we should work out three times a week. Maybe we should focus on exactly what we need to focus on. And maybe we should go outside once in a while. 
Yeah, exactly. The research in that area as well has been identifying all those things because you you know people decided that you know, they haven't worked out for forty years of their life. Maybe they did a little bit of football during you know high school and then they stopped <laughs> exercising at all and in their mid forties and suddenly they go to CrossFit and they're expected to jump into boxes and throw things around and do a hundred pull-ups and they just end up hurting themselves, you know, their hips, their knees, their, everything, because they don't have the flexibility, they don't have the skill, they don't have the stamina, they don't have the health. And especially if you're doing fitness before you take care of everything else, you still have all that inflammation coming in from your bad diet. So that's not going to help you, right? No, not at all. And so when you jump right into that stuff, yeah, like you're saying, you're going to get hurt, you're going to feel worse, you're going to wake up tired, and it's going to create a problem, then you're just going to quit on it because, oh, this isn't making me better, this makes me feel worse. And so you have to approach it in a, we used to approach it in a systematic way. You had to do almost 18 one-on-one sessions with someone before you were allowed to do look at a group class because we needed to be able to identify critical points that are going to create problems. Like what does your shoulder mobility look like? What does your hip mobility look like? Are your ankles flexy enough to even squat? And do you have the capabilities to move well? And if not, you have to fix those patterns before people can go out and do CrossFit and triathlons and all the stuff that we create goals around. And so a lot of people come in, I want to run a marathon. And I'm like, that's an awesome goal. But let's set up a prep program first. Let's make sure before we get into that volume of running that you are prepared to not get hurt. You're probably still going to hurt a little bit, but we're going to make sure that you're optimally designed to be able to move. Exactly. You don't want that to be your one and only marathon. Exactly. (laughs) If you do make it there, right? So how do you actually address this when somebody shows up in your office or you start working with somebody and what they want to do is to just start working out? Because a lot of the times that's what people believe they need to do. And it's not that it's a bad goal in and of itself. You know, wanting to exercise is always a good thing. But do you find it challenging to actually stop them and say, listen, there is a system that we need to follow and exercise is not near the top. Actually, it's closer to the bottom. Yeah, I kind of follow a little bit of transactional analysis when interacting with them. So they come in, they say, I need to exercise and I want to work out. And by this point, we've already discussed what our pillars look like. So they're kind of bought in on that. But then we say, we validate their concern. Hey, I, I totally get it. Everybody wants to get in there to get fit. All of us want to go look good in front of the mirror and we want to get to that zone. But here's what we need to do. We need to make sure that we put ourselves in a place to where you're healthy enough two years from now to keep doing it. It wouldn't be very beneficial to you if you just jumped right into a program and got hurt because you'd have to go back, you have to go to physical therapy and and you'd start right from route one, would it? And they say, well, no, that doesn't make any sense. It works in just validating their concern, reversing with the question, and then organizing them in a way to where they understand what the ultimate future looks like. It either ends in injury or it ends in optimal performance or just being happy, being able to move well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So that's a good, it's actually good to see that more and more people are recognizing this and working it in into how they handle and work with their own clients. But after fitness, after exercise, what's the next pillar? So the last pillar is wealth. And this is the most recent pillar that I've kind of decided after thinking about it for a while that we need to focus on. And it's not the pillar that, oh, I need to go out and make a million dollars and I need to do all these things. Make, like Making money is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But the idea is we need to learn how to manage our money and how to put ourselves in a place to where we're not struggling. We don't end up in the rat race where you put all your finances on credit cards and then you say, I'll pay it off, I swear. And then you never do. And now you're a slave to your credit card payment. So we need to make sure we educate and understand that 
what you pay for, you need to be able to accumulate and find the ability to continue paying for it and not finance your life with debt. So you can put yourself in a place to where you don't have to worry about these things. And it's the ability to be able to manage and sustain and control the ability to spend without getting into the elephant and the rider scenario where the elephant says, I need that purse right now. I know it costs $7,000 and I know I have a credit card for that much and I know I can't pay it off, but I'm going to buy it anyway because I want it. And then three days later, the writer comes into play and says, hold on, why did we buy that? And so you get that buyer's remorse. And so we have to teach people how to recognize this. Oh yeah, maybe I don't need that brand new Camaro right now. Or maybe I don't, don't need that coach purse. I know it's cool. I know it's awesome, but maybe I should wait on it. Maybe I should save up for it and then I can do it. So I don't put myself in the rat race and then I end up struggling to survive and working five jobs. Yeah. I think that wealth is definitely something that we need to start considering when we think about upgrading our life and optimizing our life and really thriving. Because as you and I were discussing before we started recording, it is something that when you don't have it, when you're lacking the ability to pay for your things and the ability, because really that's how we get things, the, the very basic things. Yeah, that's how you pay for rent or your mortgage, your cars, your school, your children, all those things. You need to be getting money. So I do think that when you start thinking about optimizing your life, you need to have a plan for that. It can't just be around health because if you're aching and you're not getting that money and you're not getting those means to survive, it is going to seep into the other areas. Exactly. And it typically is the one that forces you into a place you don't want to be in, a place to where you you hate the jobs you're working or, or you hate the position you're in. You look at your credit card statement and you're like, what am I doing? It just keeps growing. And I don't feel like I can get anything out of it. I, don't, I can't reduce it no matter what I do. And it puts us in this rat race, in this race where we're consistently a slave to our payments and consistently a slave to what we want versus able to pursue optimally what we actually need and what we need down the road and and obtaining what we want eventually, just not allowing it to interject into our lives when we're not ready for it. Yeah. And then you think that you're just going to start cutting on costs. So what are the first things that go? Everything that has to do with you and with yourself. So obviously, I mean, not to even mention the gym membership, but the quality of your food and the price of the food that you're paying for and certain of these conveniences and all those things. So in reality, it does affect the way that we can live our life. So what is your experience in terms of obviously the kind of people that you've worked with? How long does it normally, on average, and I know that everyone's different, but on average, how long does it take someone to actually go through these different stages? And I know there's no end goal specifically, but they do want to be able to say, okay, I've addressed this, I've addressed this, I've addressed this, I'm working on this one. So how long usually do you work with people for? Yeah. So we have, I basically organize things into stages because if it's just perpetual, people aren't going to do it because they think they're never going to accomplish it. So we start with stage one. It takes us about eight weeks to get a base level understanding and to get yourself into a place to where you're ready to be optimal. Then once you achieve the eight weeks, then you can go into a 12-month program where we pursue the next level and we pursue the higher level of optimal for all of these different pillars. But I think the biggest thing that we get the most people in are, are the first eight weeks. We need to get your all your six pillars in order. We need to get you moving in the right direction. We need to get you actually seeing life the way you should see it and the way you want to see it. And then at the end, you can say, okay, I feel good now. I feel great. I feel like I'm putting myself in a place to where this is better than years and years of struggle. Then at the end, if 
people come up and they say, now, what's my next step? What do I do next? I'm so excited. Life is good right now. Then now it's okay. You can come into our 12-month program. So now we work together on a monthly basis, weekly basis in achieving those in a more individualized format. So that way you can continue pursuing them, continue getting to where you need to go and you don't fall off track and fall off the face of the earth eventually and say, oh man, I did it. And then I fell off, but now I have to do it again. Yeah. Now, do you find that eight weeks is enough time for somebody to turn their life around? I do find it is just enough time. We used to do things a little bit longer and we had three months and we had 12 weeks. But what I found was there was a lot of drop off. People weren't quite, it was too long for them to stay organized. And so we organized everything succinctly into eight weeks, eight modules they watch, eight journal entries they go through, eight coaching sessions they go through with us. And at the end of it, it puts them in a place to where we've been able to achieve that optimal capacity and that ability to feel well. And when we look at, in terms of things like cognitive behavior therapy and CBT and psychology, it takes about eight weeks to get through longstanding issues and traumatic events. And so what we found was eight weeks was the optimal time frame to get people the results that they wanted without them falling off track and feeling like they're never going to get there. I see. And from what you're sharing right now, that seems to be a virtual program, like a long distance program, or is it more of a one-on-one? How does it work? Yeah. So originally I did the whole thing in person. I did 2000 hours with people before I even scaled it out and had people help me or built a program online around it. And so now it is online and it's available online. So we took the best practices that we learned from working in person and we created an online ecosystem for the program because we were getting a lot of people who were across the world and wanted to work with us. And there was no way, I mean, they could fly down and see us, which happens sometimes, but it's you can't help a lot of people and create a lot of impact that way. So we took what we learned and I took what I figured out in terms of all the pillars and created what we call an implementation workshop. So typically what happens is on the internet, you take a course or you buy a course and that's it. That's, that's where it is. Like 2% of people actually take the courses that they buy. And so what we did was we organized it into modules they watch, journal entries they do, and then they have to get on a Q&A call and a coaching call. So that way they say, oh, I bought this program. And I'm supposed to get on a call on Thursday. So I probably should go through this stuff. So we're not just staring at each other in the face. And so it gives people that accountability to move forward. And it gives people the ability to feel like someone's in their corner and they have something to actually shoot for versus just purchasing a course and then figuring out that they'll do it later. Yeah, for sure. And is that call, that is a one-on-one thing or is that like a group call or how does it work? Their first week, they have a one-on-one. Their fourth week and their eighth week, they have one-on-one calls. And then every week, we also have group coaching calls. And what I figured out with, in the beginning, we thought everything should be one-on-one. But what I figured out eventually was, if I added that group component, it created a culture of common experience. And it created a group of people who could look at each other and depend on each other and lean on each other for their success. And it's a private group in a private format. So they're the only ones who see what's going on. And you create some incredibly impactful friendships from this program. Well, that's incredible. That's incredible. Where can people go to find out more about that if they wanted to work with you guys? Yeah, if you want to work with us, the first step is watching our free training. So you can go to my Facebook page. It's facebook.com forward slash Chan's Logic and just type in five shifts and we'll give you our five shifts to removing anxiety and depression and taking back your life and career and reigniting your ability to be well. That's amazing. That's amazing. I'll make sure to link to all those things in our show notes and our episode description. And, you know, people know where to find all those things. Now, on every episode, we normally ask our guests their top two or three actionable pieces of advice that people listening to us right now can actually grab from this conversation from your expertise and start applying in their life. What do you think in your experience that the average person could benefit the most? What do you think are the top two or three recommendations that you would give them to actually start upgrading their life today? Yeah, the first two I'd say is learn to be selfish. 
to put yourself in a place to where you can finally take you and make you a priority. The biggest problem people have initially is they feel bad about putting themselves first. They feel bad about putting them like, oh, I'm exercising, but I'm not doing this for this person. Oh, I'm focusing on this. Oh, but I'm not doing this for this person. So put you first, be selfish and be happy about it. Be pumped about it. And then number two, stand your ground. So when you start your program and when you go into your fitness and your nutrition and your social health and your mental health, stand your ground in your program. There's going to be people who say, why are you doing that? You don't need help with your mental health. Just suck it up. You don't need help with your nutrition. Just eat Wonder Bread. You don't need help with your fitness. Just do CrossFit. You don't need help with your wealth. Just open a credit card. So there's going to be a lot of people out there who say these things to you. And so stand your ground. Be proud of what you're doing and be proud of the journey you're on and be proud of the evolution that you're taking yourself because you're putting yourself on a place to where you're going to build a better version of you in the future. For sure. And I think that is such an important point. I hadn't thought of it that way, but it totally is because people will come in and say, oh, you're an idiot. Why are you paying for this? You can just Google it. And my cousin just got a diet of the, you know, a keto diet right there. Or, or you can just do some YouTube videos on CrossFit and you can do <laughs> and all those good. things. Exactly. And you're good. And in reality, if that's all it took, nobody would be needing all of these services and we wouldn't be in this in, in, in the mess that we're currently are as a society, right? Exactly. Perfect. So Chandler, thank you so much for taking the time for being here. I do want to acknowledge you for doing what you're doing. I think that the framework that you've developed so far is tremendously impactful. There are so many things that I see that I think you're doing a tremendous job with. And I certainly hope that you're being able to help as many people as you possibly can. Because when any of us here in the health field in general is able to impact and help other people. It really just improves the lives of everyone around us. So thank you so much for doing the work that you're currently doing. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. I, I appreciate the time. I appreciate the ears of the listeners. And I hope we gave you the skills and the strategies to take your life back and pursue the six pillars of optimal wellness and build the next version of you, the imperfect version and be proud of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I completely agree. I'm sure that everyone here listening has uh, thoroughly enjoyed the show. I have enjoyed the show. I was taking a couple of notes here. So we'll all get better from this for sure. For everyone listening, thank you so much for tuning in once again. You've been listening to Chandler Walker and Dr. E talking about optimizing your wellness. You know the drill. If you liked what you listened to here, you just need to look up all the links that we've discussed in this episode's description, either in your podcast app or if you're watching YouTube, you know where the description is right there. You'll find the links to everything there. Thank you so much for tuning in and I will see you back here next week. Thank you for listening to Dr. E's Highway to Health show, helping you learn the science of living ageless. Did you enjoy the show? Please like, share, and subscribe where you listen to podcasts. Dr. E wants to hear from you. Go to dre.show. Again, that's dre.show. Until next time, this is Dr. E's Highway to Health, helping you live ageless. I hope you enjoyed this episode. What was your favorite takeaway? Tag me on Instagram or connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know what you think. And by the way, Remember that you can find the links to everything we discussed in this episode in the show notes. You scroll down to this episode's description on your podcast app and tap on the appropriate link. And before you go, remember to check out my new coaching programs at dre.show forward slash coach. See the different options, learn more, ask questions, and decide whether or not health coaching is right for you and your goals. That's it for today. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode. You've been listening to Chandler Walker and Dr. E talk about the six pillars of wellness. Thank you for tuning in. I'll see you here next week. And remember, you are on the highway to health and I'm your guide to get you there.